Good evening. It is Wednesday night, 9 p.m. I am Rabbi Ephraim Gober, joined by my colleague and dear friend, Roy Philip Moskowitz. And we're here to take you behind the bima. <laughs> behind the bima. You might notice that tonight there are only two of us. Where is our third host? Where is the great, the inimitable, the one and only Rabbi Josh Brody? So the answer is that we're having on a Harvard professor, and Rabbi Brody was a little bit intimidated and nervous. He couldn't even show uh, to have this professor from Harvard, but I'm just joking. That is not where he is. Rabbi Brody is in the Holy Land. He's back leading yet another men's trip to Eretz Israel, to Israel. He is part of Momentum and building the momentum of the Jewish people and uh, trying to help inspire Jews of all backgrounds. He's in Israel. It is the middle of the night. It's an interesting thing because... Many less dedicated people woke up in the middle of the night to be on behind the bima, but Rabbi Brody needs his sleep. So, no, in all fairness, he was going to come on, but he's in the middle of a desert now with no lights or Wi Fi reception. Correct. He said no Wi Fi, no generator, no power outlet. They're in like a tent in the desert. And so, even the great Rabbi Brody is back. But it's an opportunity for us. A little chavrusa, a little one-on-one, wow. and uh, we do have a very special night tonight. First of all, let us thank our generous sponsors of tonight's episode, our dear friends Naomi and Tzvi Nachman. Naomi Nachman is world-renowned chef, uh, cookbook author, influencer uh, online, and a good friend of my wife and a good friend of our community. So we always love to taste her food and learn from her and be inspired by her great accent and her joy for life. And Tzvi Nachman is a really great example of someone who's a business person, but very dedicated to learning Torah, teaching Torah, and sharing Torah. He is coming out with a book with a beautiful Sefer. I had the privilege of seeing in advance. Really, really wonderful contribution based on uh, classes that he gives. And looking forward to it coming out. So big, big thank you to Naomi and Tzvi Nachman for their generosity, their sponsorship, and their support of Behind the Bima this evening. Rabbi Moskowitz, what is going on with you? What is going on with you? You made you posted a picture on Facebook this week that went somewhat viral in our community. Um, we got a lot of likes, three hundred likes. That's a I think that's pretty, a considered pretty somewhat viral. Definition of viral, but yeah, mildest definition. But it, it generated a lot of goodwill. And the picture was of you and Rabbi Dan Levin, a close colleague of ours, reform rabbi in the area. You 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 were golfing with, and I'm curious if you could explain to our viewers why you chose to post that picture. And why you think so many people reacted the way that they did? I did not set you up to ask that question. You did uh, not. I did not. But it's it's a great question. And the truth is that we had a third great partner in that round of golf. For whatever reason, didn't appear in that picture. I'm not sure exactly why. But Rabbi Moskowitz joined us as well. And, and the three of us have played golf in the past with uh, a fourth great golfer and friend of ours in the community, Rabbi David Englander. David Englander. And. Um, and, and why did I post it? You know, it's an interesting question. It's an interesting conversation we could have in general about what governs or what are the rules or policies that dictate what we post on social media. I think we try to use it not for personal uh, pictures or personal updates or to celebrate personal milestones. We use it to promote Torah, to stir and provoke conversation, to share programs in our shul and elsewhere. Uh, that's almost exclusively, almost exclusively why we use it. Um, and yet I posted this picture understanding that I might welcome a lot of feedback, including, oh, it's good to be the rabbi. You can take off and play golf, although how infrequently we are able to get out there and play. But I did it anyway, even though it was kind of a personal picture, dress down day for golf attire. And I did it for the following reason. Rabbi Levin, our good friend, Rabbi Dan, I think you were in the car with me when he called me uh, a couple months ago, a month ago. It was after the Yom Tovim, after the holidays. 
And he said to me, he said, my dear brother Ephraim, I love you and miss you. We haven't seen each other in a long time. Are you free? Let's get together. And I thought it was important for the world to know that there's a genuine relationship and a genuine friendship. There was no agenda. We were not collaborating on a program, standing up against anti-Semitism, advocating for Israel, collaborating or co-sponsoring, bringing IDF soldiers. It was just spend time together. And there's a mutual respect and a love. And we're brothers. And there's a lot we overlap in our profession. And there's a lot we share, the three of us, all of us share in our aspiration to impact the Jewish people. And of course, there are enormously significant differences. We disagree vehemently on critical core issues that are defining, and they're very important. But the amazing thing is that we're able to nevertheless uh, have the beautiful relationship we do, and there's a respect. Rabbi Dan, we have great colleagues all over our area in Palm Beach, but he really stands out among them of being really accommodating, flexible, loving, and not at all angry or bitter about the orthodox position on things. And it was it was great to spend time together with him, with you, to be together and, uh, and to have no agenda. And we just had fun. And I think that's what people reacted to. They were gratified and maybe it was refreshing for them to see that. And that was the agenda. Everything I share is because I think there's something teachable to do it. So there's nothing teachable about mentioning a birthday in my family or teachable about you know, what, ha- what I'm eating for dinner, what my dessert looks like. Sorry, no, Menachman, but your desserts are worth sharing. Mine are not. Um, but, but I try to share things that I think are teachable. I might have made another exception to the rule today because I posted a video that I just could not help but post because it was the cutest thing I ever saw in my entire life. I didn't see that one, so I can't comment on it. I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, it's interesting because, and I agree, obviously we've run programs with Rabbi Dan before and and uh, some of his colleagues over there at Bethel, and it's a very meaningful relationship, and it's a genuine relationship. You know, one of the things you did not mention, and I hope I'm not putting my foot in my mouth by mentioning it, but that wasn't the only reason that Rabbi Dan called you that day. Rabbi Dan called you that way day because there was a policy issue, which we don't have to mm. get into, and I'm not going to mention it specifically, but there was an in- uh, issue that he believed very strongly about, um, and he wanted to see if there was room or any area where both he and you could see eye to eye and perhaps even come together on. And if not, if not, but at least he respected you enough to call you up and to have that conversation. And to me, that's very special also because it recognized the differences. Um, He recognized that there were profound differences on the way Orthodox rabbi might view that issue versus a reform rabbi. But because he has such respect for you, instead of putting something on social media about it, instead of assuming that you held a certain position because of that relationship, he wanted to reach out to you and say, you know, my dear friend, Rabbi Ephraim, here's where I'm thinking about it. Here's where my community is. I think there's room for you and I to collaborate on. If that's the case, yes. If not, I respect that. But I think even that's a beautiful thing because you can only have those types of conversations if it's built on a relationship. Once the relationship is there, you can have difficult conversations and you can agree to disagree. I agree with you. And I think that you can go into this and you can focus on the differences or you can find the similarities. There are enormous differences. They're significant. They're important. But there are also a lot of things we can work on and collaborate together. And if we're interested in the future of the Jewish people and we want to make a dent in some of these issues that really matter and have an impact, then we should find and focus on on those areas too. And I could not agree with you more. I think in too many communities, um, interdenominationally, there are challenges or tensions that rise and it's too late to try to have a relationship once they already appear and you have to confront them because it's a problem. You don't have that relationship. We have the foundation of these relationships so that when something does get complicated, tense, difficult, or when there is something we can work on, we're not first introducing ourselves. We're not first building trust. 
there are years of those relationships. Some of the rabbis in Boca, uh, Rabbi Josh and I, Rabbi Brody and I have been on March of the Living. We've been to Poland with. You've been on Federation Mission to Israel with other of our colleagues. And, and there's nothing like being touring together, sitting on a bus together, being jet-lagged together, having, having some wine together in the evening to really break down some of those barriers to forge that relationship. And now there's a foundation upon which you can build when those other issues that come up. So yeah, we had a great time. We should do it more often. As I said, previously we've done Reform Conservative Orthodox round of golf together because you know what? There aren't those differences. N on nobody's golf bag does it say what denomination they are, right? It's not like we're debating like you go on the Mahmir tee and we're on the liberal tee and you know we have different rules or approaches. We were just there having a good time, having fun, comparing notes, talking about life, dealing with the, the stresses and just enjoying the great outdoors together. And we had a lot of fun. And I will say, Rabbi Moskowitz, that you were driving the ball unbelievably, <laughs> so much so that I'm wondering, have you been taking time off to practice? Have you been taking, yeah, that's exactly. But, you know, one of our listeners wants to know who won the round of golf. I don't know who won it, but I'm curious if any of our listeners can guess what Rabbi Goldberg scored on the golf course the other day. It was a lot better than my score, but yes, I was driving the ball very nicely. I was I was happy. That can, that'll at, keep at me coming point, back. At this point, if you walk off, you're not injured. Everything's intact. Nothing hurts. You didn't break a window. Then, then you're a winner. Can I share the video that I that I shared today because it's the cutest thing I ever saw in, in my. I don't know what you're life. talking about. So sure. Okay, good. Here we go. Lila, die. <laughs> I'm Lila, die. Lila, die. Okay. Oh my God. Oh! <laughs> okay, so that video is my grandson, Aryeh Pearl, and he was at the Biblical Zoo today in Yerushalayim, Ir HaKodesh, and uh, he was saying die, not wishing death upon the gorilla. He goes to Gan in Israel, and the little children, and maybe the Ganen, it says die means enough, right? If you're mischievous and you're not playing, you're not cleaning up, you say die, die, enough, enough. So he was yelling at the gorilla, die, die, as in enough, enough, and the gorilla apparently doesn't speak Hebrew. The gorilla understood the English interpretation of die, die, <laughs> and came charging at him. But like, you know, so it violated all my rules and protocols, but it might be the cutest uh, thing. For grandchildren, you could do whatever you want. The dream. And yeah, so so I was, we have a very, very special guest on tonight who has an illustrious career, a ceiling-breaking career, started a department at Harvard University that no one would have guessed. Yiddish literature, Yiddish. She is an authority in the definition of anti-Semitism. She herself ran away and fled the uh, the um, Second World War, the Holocaust, and as a survivor. It's an amazing life story. She's written her autobiography. She is incredibly successful, and we'll get to her in just a moment. But I want to remind everyone that we have some beautiful Behind the Bema swag, and here's how you can get it tonight. We've got the car magnet. We've got really cool hats. Stay happy, stay holy, stay healthy. We've got these beautiful cups. cups. And uh, here's tonight how you can join. Rate and review. Apple Podcast, write a review. And every week, we will do a raffle from those who review on Apple Podcasts, and you can get some really cool swag. This is not like a hat, again, as we spoke about last week, that's going to sit in your closet or get given away, or you're going to wear when you do your Pesach cleaning. This is a really impressive, excellent, exciting hat. Find the on the side, not front and center. You'll wear it when you're trying to blend in at Disney or Great Adventure. You're on vacation or at the airport, and you don't want anyone to know you're Jewish. So anyway, you want to be eligible to get our swag, then simply offer your review on Apple Podcasts. And um, 
we will do a raffle every week from the people who do the review. Use your name so we know who the winner is and we can be in touch with you. Now, my kids after this are going to say, Abba, that was pathetic. Why are you pushing people to rate and review? But here's my answer to them. Someone told me the reason we have to do this is because it's what Meaningful People does. That our friend <laughs> Nachi Gordon on Meaningful People rate and review. He has people review, then he does a raffle to win something. And that's what has helped them go viral. So good enough for Nachi, Meaningful People. Good, good enough, enough for, us. for us. We want people to hear those, uh, those messages and get that word out. Which is uh, which is exciting. I want to weigh on one other thing before we bring our special guest in tonight, and that is to conclude or or at least continue a conversation we had been having. You spoke very strongly, very passionately about the importance of coming back in person and no longer giving classes only online. Last week you came back in person. You did Tehillim in person. Want to hear your impressions of that experience? It's it's incomparable. You can't compare the energy of being in a room with people. It was refreshing. It was exciting. I loved looking at people, interacting with people. To me, that's the best part because it's the difference between lecturing and teaching. And I think there's a really important difference there. When you're on Zoom, you're lecturing. I'm teaching. People are listening. I hope people are listening. I don't know if people are listening. Maybe their cameras are on, off. They're doing yoga. They're golfing. Who knows what they're doing? But I'm teaching and I'm, I'm, I'm lecturing and I'm speaking to a camera. When you're in a room, it's an interactive experience. So I'm allowed to ask a question and people are going to answer and then they can debate. And to me, that's really what a class is all about. It's about getting people involved. It's triggering their minds, challenging them to think. Um, you know, it's funny. The other week I asked a question and then I just paused. I said, see, now I can do this. If we were on camera, it would be really awkward if I just stopped. But now I'm in a room. I want to hear what you have to say. That's the whole point of coming back in person. And it was great. To me, that's what gives me the energy in teaching um, I love that give and take. I love the interaction. I love seeing people almost like squirm a little bit awkwardly in their seats where they're like, ooh, that's a good question. I hope he's not going to look at me and, and call on me. But I think there's a healthy part to that, which is that it engages people at a different level. And uh, I think that's a very special component, not just of lecturing, but of teaching. I agree. I had the experience yesterday at the Parsha class, something that hasn't happened in a very long time, also from teaching online, is that the Parsha class is like, you know how we have our main minion laugh? Should we, should we let people in on what we're talking about? As a rabbi, we give a, a generous we laugh. We are now up to, on Shabbos morning at the Boca Town Synagogue, nine minyanim. Every Shabbos morning, we have nine minyanim. And we have other rabbis who help us by speaking in them. We have a wonderful Sephardi rabbi, Rabbi Mike Zinich, And we have a, um, a great teen rabbi who speaks in the teen minyan. Um, but you and I make a rotation around different minyanim. And we basically take essentially the same drusha and we adapt it to the different minyanim we're speaking in. Maybe we add, maybe we take away, maybe the style in which we deliver it is different. But by far, the minion that is the most sympathetic, by far the minion that is the kindest and will laugh at the corniest of our jokes is the main minion. So we'll talk about that. That was the main minion laugh, meaning you said a joke. It wasn't funny, but you got a main minion laugh. So my Pasha class is the main minion laugh. So I was given the Pasha class yesterday. I said a few of my corny jokes that really I was not entitled to anyone laughing at. And I got a great laugh. And I paused I said, thank you. I missed that. For the last 18 months, <laughs> I missed that. The energy that's exchanged when someone laughs, the energy in the Amunashir this morning, I saw a tear in someone's eye because we were talking piece by Revolba beautifully about faith in God, difficult times. You can't compare looking into a camera, looking at a screen, looking at your reflection, essentially, with seeing the emotional reaction someone has. But by the same token, and I'll leave you with this, we want to bring in our incredible guest. I did get an email from somebody in New York. I won't say which neighborhood of New York or who it is, and they write the following. They said, uh, ba, 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 ba. 
Oh, well, there's no comparison of being able to listen to a sheer live versus online. And yes, when you are listening on YouTube, you are multitasking, making dinner, walking to work, folding laundry. It is definitely not the same con concentration. However, and in capitals, however, it is passive income of time to be inspired and elevated while doing these chores. And the dividends are infinite. Ashrecha, I'm jealous of your olam haba. You are a rich man indeed. And I love that characterization. It, yeah, is, uh, it is a passive income, passive income and collecting dividends. Meaning, you're right, the primary audience, the primary sheer should not be online. But the fact that we continue to stream it or broadcast it or make it available, there is residual income. There are the dividends of people who listen later or who knows in the future will Google or come across. You and I Google things all the time and discover and stumble upon tremendous wisdom and who knows when it was recorded and when it was shared. And if it was only said offline, we never would have come to it. We would never would have uh, we never would have gotten to it. Listen, it'll be a great conversation with our guest next week, Rabbi Yy Jacobson, an amazing guest for next week. Rabbi Yy is a great balance of those. He gives a shear in person, a very popular shear. You and I have been there um, earlier in the morning in Muncie, but he's also unabashedly putting his stuff online and all over right. the place. And he struck that balance. And you and I benefit from his Torah. If he didn't put it online, we wouldn't be able to listen to it. A Jew down in Boca would not be able to benefit from Rabbi Yy. On the right. other hand, if you've been in the room with him, you know it's a different experience. So, you know, be curious to perhaps talk to him about that and to get his sense of that balance as well. Absolutely. Everybody book next week, 9 o'clock behind the Bima. You better book from like 9 to 12 because there's so much to talk to him about. So, again, you want to be eligible. Somebody has asked, Shulamit has asked whether you can buy the swag. We did not create, what's it called, like a marketplace? What do they call that where you yeah, can buy swag? The... Merch. We did not create merch. a merch site. We don't really think anybody... There's not going to be a whole lot of people, but leave a review and you'll be eligible. And the fewer the people do, the higher your chance of winning. But hopefully many will leave that review, be eligible for the win. But let us now welcome, because this is a tremendous opportunity and we are very grateful. I don't think either of us went to Ivy League school. Did you go to an Ivy League school, Rabbi Moskowitz? No. Nope. But we're Much about to go to, to Ivy League school. Chagrin. <laughs> what a great privilege it is to welcome the one and the only, the great Dr. Professor Ruth Weiss. It's a true privilege and pleasure to be uh, joined by an outstanding scholar, an outstanding person, someone who is an inspiration through her own journey and her contribution to scholarship. Professor Ruth Weiss, thank you so much for making time and thank you so much for being with us. It's my very great pleasure. Thank you. We're so honored to have this opportunity to talk and we know that you've recently published your, your memoir Free as a Jew, a personal memoir of national self-liberation. And in it, you write that my story is worth telling, not because of what I've overcome, but because of what we all have yet to overcome. And could you share a little bit about that with us in terms of your own personal background, what you were confronted, what you were challenged by, what you had to overcome, and, and how that can influence and inspire us to think about what we collectively yet have to overcome together. Well, that would be to rehearse the whole book, actually. But um, in writing it, what I learned was different from what I had thought that I was going to be doing. What I found was that I was telling a story uh, full of uh, very fortunate breaks. Um, I was born in East Central Europe in uh, 1940. In 1936, I'm sorry, um, my birth date is in 1936. And my parents uh, fled with my older brother and with me in 1940. Uh, we came 
that was um, commissioned for war on its return journey and was never used as a passenger ship again. Um, so we really came at the last hour and we came to Canada and that had the worst emission record in all of the civilized world. The year that we arrived, they had only allowed in some 250 Jews um, and um, turned away, you cannot even see how many countless thousands of others. Um, and then everything in my life turned out to be, um, you know, it was good thing because I've um, been described as having been uh, what we call an ear of the aim, a, a, a mothering city for the Jewish people. It just happened that the way Montreal Jewish day schools, uh, wonderful opportunities for all of us growing up. Uh, it had been a, a rather anti-Semitic uh, climate in Quebec during the 1930s, but by the time we were growing up, everything was opening up. So this is just to say that what I was describing in personal terms from the very beginning to the present moment of my life has just been a wonderful, wonderful story. Uh, but something strange uh, happened <laughs> during those years. Um, and I traced that too, because I had done that since my 70s. I began to see that, for example, anti-Semitism, which had been almost gone. Um, I had never experienced it growing up. I had never even experienced it at college. That taught quotas against Jews at McGill, where I was growing up. Um, I, it was just a wonderful time when one could introduce Jewish studies into the university, when one could really partake of a nominal uh, emerging American culture. Everything really, um, I, I think it was the, it, it was what I call the years of grace of Jewish life. From 1945 to 1973, I would call about the years of grace in Jewish life. But then beginning for me, formally begins um, uh, with the passage of the UN resolution 3379 in 1975 that says that uh, Zionism is a form of racism. The fact that the Arab countries Law could pass that absolute the United Nations and that it could stay until 1991. And that even in 1991, um, it was really formally taken, you know, revoked. But the United Nations never did anything to repel that horrific resolution. 15 years they had promoted this throughout the world. So that, in fact, the United Nations had become the world forum for anti-Semitism and remained in, before the whole world, parts of the world that had seen a Jew, now knew that Zionism was racism. And this began to really penetrate North America. So that what I began to see as I read this book is that while the trajectory, the trajectory of my own private life was just really something that was 
just magical almost in its opportunities. The time I entered 1993 to teach there, the things began to go in the opposite direction. It was a time of de-Judaizing. It was a time when um, Jews became, it did not become spontaneously, but when grievance, uh, as I call them, a grievance movement began to coordinate that really targeted Jews through Zion, presumably, basically centered in civilization and all that. This is very strong anti-American movement, anti-movement, and it impacted all kinds of things that were happening all around me. Um, so that you see, there's a there's a kind of terrible imbalance here. Um, you know, most people who sit down nowadays, most of the books that you'll read that are kind of memoirs, you'll see how I overcame an opium addiction how I overcame, you know, my horrific childhood, how I overcame my disabilities. And these are stories which can be very inspiring. I was writing this story that was very much the opposite. It was a story of unbelievable good fortune. And yet what I had to describe was what was happening that was rotten all around me. And that's why I end with that sense that you quote, um, that it's what we all have to over and um a lot that is unfortunate uh, that we have to fight very hard to try to repel there's so many questions i have as as follow-up there's so much that you shared and so Does much that, that you stand for it? let's go back to the the beginning in terms of your career i know you write about how how and even mentioned just now how proud you are how surprised you are that you were able to make a career of of teaching and chairing Yiddish yeah. literature at Harvard, the highest level, the bastion of, of liberal arts education, and uh, to represent Yiddish. First of all, I should have asked you at the beginning whether you'd like to conduct this in Yiddish or in English. And then Rabbi Moskowitz wouldn't have been included, so it's good that we're doing it in English. Um, but you know, talk about the significance of Yiddish, if you would, and, and why you think, why would a Harvard University have a department to chair? Why would it be interested in preserving the language of Yiddish, the literature of Yiddish, what Yiddish represents. I know that one of uh, the people that you mentored is a childhood friend of mine, Jeremy Dauber. His parents are still good friends of my parents. Um, it's, it's still, it's a, a sort of a dying interest in art and yet an important one. Why is it important to preserve? Well, you know what a Jew would answer that. Why not, right? <laughs> I mean, that would be our, uh, an answer. And actually that was my attitude. Uh, finally, um, I describe in the book how I came to um, to conceive of this idea of introducing Yiddish into the university. Um, in fact, uh, I had grown up not only in a Yiddish-speaking home, but in a that valued Yiddish as the um, repository of Jewish life. My mother, um, when she really began to make a home for us in Montreal. Yiddish was the most important part of her life. I think that she saw that as the basically the repository through which she would transmit Judaism. And my mother loved literature and she loved writers. And so her house was really with some of the greatest Yiddish writers who actually came to Montreal to give lectures. My mother would 
usually have a reception for them in our home. There were wonderful Yiddish teachers and writers in Montreal, uh, Rachel Korn, Melech Ravitch, Yudyut Siegel, uh, Ed Amazia. Um, later, uh, other people came, um, um, uh, uh, Morgenthaler, um, I, I think of Goldie Morgenthaler because Morgenthaler's um, Chava Rosenfarb settled in Montreal. Very, very rich in culture, in Yiddish culture. And then I describe how I came to McGill and um, I loved literature. And so I went into honors literature and then afterwards got a job. And I met the Yiddish poet Avram Sutzkever, whom I still think is probably one of the greatest poets of the 20th century. And here I don't say one of the greatest Yiddish poets of the 20th century, but definitely one of the greatest poets of the 20th century. Um, I think that anyone who knows his poetry would uh, concur with that assessment. I brought him on a speaking tour to North America and um, those were amazing, uh, just amazing uh, evenings. Um, I wish I could recreate them for you and for your listeners. You know, hundreds and hundreds of people came to hear him because he had gone through the, the Vilna Get. He had testified at the Nuremberg of Russian Jewry. Um, He's not a poet only, but his poetry had become kind of a sign of uh, the life of the Jewish people through the Shoah, through the Churban, and afterwards. And so when he came, I mean, all the people that knew anything about him and Yiddish literature came to hear him. People came from the United States because he visited the United States. They came to Montreal to hear him. So it was unbelievable. And then before he left Montreal, we had a conversation and he asked me what I was uh, Did I have I said, as a matter of fact, thinking of back to school. Um, he said, yeah, and I said, I, I think I'll study English literature, which was what I had been studying. And he said, why don't you study Yiddish literature? And I, I've told this many times, and I laughed. I said, and what would I do? Teach Shalom Aleichem? And even as I said those words, you see, I realized that this was unbelievable. What was I saying? I was insulting him, of course. And then I was insulting myself and everything I had grown up on. I had studied Sholem Aleichem as a child in Jewish school. I knew that he was a wonderful writer. I knew that there were hundreds of excellent writers and poets there. Why had I laughed? So you see, it's a self, it was a moment of sort of self-realization. And the moment those words came out of my mouth, I realized that this was a possibility. So I said to him pretty lamely, I said, I'm sorry, uh, uh, there is no place to study Yiddish literature. And he said, oh, yes, there is. Obviously, he had thought this through beforehand. Um, he said, oh, yes, there is. In Columbia University is running the um, literature there. Next day, I called up Columbia. Within a couple of months, I was registered at Columbia to begin my graduate studies in Yiddish literature. 
And um, although it was then the only place on the continent where Yiddish was taught, by the way, not Yiddish literature, he was teaching Yiddish linguistics and he was only giving a, a literature course or two kind of side. So I was the only person in the comparative literature department who was actually studying Yiddish literature. And so I describe how that became a career. It wasn't, you know, it didn't happen overnight. Uh, I had to talk everyone into it at every stage of the game and I try to describe how that happened. Um, but I must say that in the 1960s when this was happening, if you can reconstruct that, it was a time when universities were opening up, when the whole world you know, seemed to be a little bit opening up culturally. And, um, and so I say that, yes, you had to push against doors, but one almost felt at certain points that one was pushing against open doors or against doors that were very willing once you came and presented and made your case. So I, I want to just follow up before we so, let Moskowitz get in. I'm sorry, with, with one more question, um, which it's a perfect pivot at this point because you said that you found the universities very open and uh, if not fully open, but doors that were unlocked easily opened. And, and since then, you know, not only have you become a, a leader in, of Yiddish literature, but you've become a spokesperson for um, standing up for traditional values, whether it's advocating for the Jewish people, for the state of Israel, or for traditional Jewish values, conservative Jewish values, definitions of marriage and, and the like. Um, undoubtedly on the way, and certainly most recently, you've encountered pushback, you've encountered a cancel culture, you've encountered particularly on college campus, and it seems that the higher level, <clears throat> excuse me, the Ivy League college campus, maybe even uh, the worst of those pushing back and trying to make everyone conform to those ideas. How have you been able to preserve your traditional values and your traditional ideals, continue to be a spokesperson from them, even while facing adversity or facing uh, a cancel culture, uh, a term only more recent, but undoubtedly that you confronted even earlier on? What gave you the tenacity? What gave you the strength? And what are some of those values that you cling to so strongly that despite the world changing around us, you think it's critically important for us to, to maintain? Natasha, I lived in the Soviet Union, and in the Soviet Union, to stand up for what you believed was really to, you know, to risk your life. I never risked my life. I was a tenured professor, and so I can never understand that. What I can't understand is the culture of cowardice all around me. I don't think I'm an exception. I think the people are exceptions who just cave. I don't understand why they do. It's just inconceivable to me that Jews would not stand up for who they are, for what they've been, for the Jewish way of life. You see, to me, Judaism has become more and more miraculous. I must say that this is a remarkable people. Um, you know, here is a people, and this is the case that I would put before everybody to try to remember every day, that this is a people who in the 1950s lost one third of their numbers. Here was the most brilliant people on the European continent. Nobody denied Jews had spite. There were so many brilliant figures of Judaism. And in five years, six million Jews slaughtered. Uh, 
humiliatingly? I mean, it's unbelievable. How did this, how could the Jewish people let this happen to them? Ah, but in that same decade of the 1940s, Jews recovered their sovereignty in the land of Israel that had been under foreign occupation for two millennia. Now, I would, I would really put the question to everybody, where in human history do you find anything like that, a people capable of that? So obviously the infrastructure for that reconstruction had been there. I have to say that, um, that the, the joy of being a Jew and uh, the privilege of being a Jew is something that, you know, it's is just, uh, it, it's so obvious to me that I cannot see how anyone can do less but to try to, uh, you know, to uphold it as best one can, uh, to teach it to one's children, um, to, to write about it, to try to interest others in it. And since I was given the opportunity really to have graduate students to whom one could really instruct them in some of these texts, in some of the, you know, uh, very interesting works. By the way, um, Yiddish literature is very complicated. Yiddish literature is, is not the Torah. Yiddish literature is the literature of modernization. And I would say that much of the process of Jewish modernization, with its dangers and with its mistakes, is really present in Yiddish literature. And one of the problems we have as a modern Jewish people is that nobody knows that. So much of now you have to replay all of the same mistakes all over again because some of those instructive texts that tell you where things went wrong are really not known to people. Um, so yeah, as far as others are concerned, I would say that, you know, sometimes in teaching Yiddish literature, I've said, I don't want to be misunderstood. I've said that the, the Eurasian culture, because mostly because, you know, those 6 million Jews were very largely Yiddish speaking Jews. I sometimes say it's like the Jewish people had a lobotomy, a cultural lobotomy, because that whole huge sector of discussion and of creativity, and as I say, of learning, learning from one's own good deeds and from one's own failures, all of that is not transmitted. Um, sin, you see what privilege it is. And at the same time, you know, to have to see that you know, not much of it is known. And unfortunately, you see in North America, um, you know, Jews don't even bother to teach their children anything about their Jewishness. Um, the Jewish day are, are there and blessed are theirs who teach in them and, and uh, the philanthropists who maintain them. And, uh, and the parents who send their children there are the children who, who, who grow up in day schools. But even the I must say, understand the enormity of the charge that is theirs uh, to transmit this. We, we tend to take, you know, so much so lightly and, um, and, and, um, 
you know, I, I think we have a huge responsibility. Thank you uh, so much, Professor. And there's so many follow-up questions I have in the, even the way you described the, the privilege and the miraculousness of, you know, Jewish life nowadays. Now, not everyone takes it for granted. How if people take it for granted and they don't take advantage of the religious opportunities. I think there's a whole side conversation, but I want to ask you a different question, which is, you know, one of the things I'm struck by having read a few of your books and, and uh, researching your articles online and even hearing you speak is the thoughtfulness of the way in which you communicate. And what's so fascinating to me about that is how disconnected that is with the rest of society, where it's really been boiled down to sound bites and to memes and who can throw in the best one-liner in the fastest way. That person gets the most likes on Facebook or the most followers. You've clearly chosen a different path, which is that in all of your articles, they're well thought out, they're lengthy, they're descriptive. Um, do you feel yourself at times getting sucked into that soundbite culture? What would your message be for people into the value of thinking through issues and seeing the complexity of issues and perhaps fleshing out issues a little bit more? And do you think that would be helpful for society in the long run in terms of the vitriol that we oftentimes see because of the sound bites? How could we benefit more of the sound bites? You, you know, you're very kind, Rabbi, because you could so easily have turned that around and said, good God, you carry on. You certainly write these long articles. Why can't you, you know, can't you and uh, as a matter of fact, my daughter sometimes says to me, you know, mom, sound bites, sound bites, you know, uh, you've got to, um, you've got to make it short. And uh, uh, so there's something to be said, let me say, for those who can more easily summarize it than I can. Um, and uh, there are people who probably wish them so much, including my writing who's on slow parts of what I've written uh, in order to really get it into the, um, uh, the form that it has to be. But I do take your point very seriously. And there is something very serious about it. Um, you see, this is part of what we inherit as Jew people. You, you, know, you know how complicated our civilization is. It's not reducible to sound bites. So if it were, then I would say to everyone, what do you want more than the Ten Commandments? You want more than the Ten Commandments? Isn't that enough? I mean, that is certainly the civilizing process. You keep the Ten Commandments, you take them seriously, you have a civilized people. And, um, and it's tough to maintain that. But is that our culture? No, it's huge. It's an interpretive cult that's gone on interpreters upon interpreters. And let me just say, let's take the Jewish day schools. Um, you know, we all, you know, very often what comes to the Jewish day schools and one can say to them, for example, why aren't you teaching dish literature in addition to what you're doing? And the Jewish day school principal and teachers will say to you, but look, look at our curriculum already. If we're teaching tefillah, if we're teaching uh, how to pray, which is so important, if we're teaching the Bible, can you do without that? If we're trying to teach the modicums of the Talmud, what about that? Can they do without Hebrew? Of course not. Do we have enough hours in a day to teach them Hebrew at any given level? So we have to do that. 
Should we not teach them Jewish history? Well, of course we should, and so forth. Do you see what I'm saying? That there is so much, and it is so complex, that it is irreducible. And this is one of the wonderful things that Judaism has taught us, that it isn't reducible so easily. You cannot just simply say, you know, keep the Sabbath holy. Yes, okay, w what does that mean? What does that mean when you're in a society that is functioning on a Saturday and your kids want to go out and they want to do what others do? What do you do then? So you see, I, I think that complexity is that we inherit and your question is marvelous because I do think um, that people who feel that it has to be right or left, that it has to be clear cut answers can so I do think that one has to cultivate possibility of complexity, teach them. Uh, well, don't say, uh, you know, that Sally is uh, uh, rotten, you know, uh, don't say that. Um, yes, she's done something bad. So the deed is not a deed, but does that mean that she is bad? And you see what I mean? That, that um, that the introduction of the idea of complexity is, God forbid, it's not in order to, uh, uh, you know, to to um, muddy the differences between good and evil. I think that it is very, very important what is right and what is wrong. But in order to do that, I think you have to be, you have to look at it. Um, uh, with a sense of perspective, and that perspective is itself a complexity. You, you have some specific criteria for the definition of anti-Semitism, and we're living in a time in which we've seen a rise and increase in anti-Semitic attitudes, anti-Semitic acts, um, of course, very uh, concerning, very deeply troubling. Um, are, are you concerned that we're labeling things that are not anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic? Are people using that term too loosely and therefore does it lose its definition or its power if we're labeling things or misappropriating the use of the term anti-Semitism? And, and how would anti-Semitism overlap with anti-Israel? Um, the Ben and Jerry's boycott of parts of Israel, is that only something which is an anti-Israel policy or by definition does that meet your criteria therefore of being anti-Semitic? I'm very grateful for that question because this is something that I've uh, struggled to uh, stand first of all and then to explain I understood parts of it and I've written a book called Empower which is an attempt to explain the, the question that you're asking but in a nutshell uh, and again it's in a soundbite I can't uh, I can't manage um, I would really thank you for that question because I do make a very firm distinction between anti-Semitism and what other people call hatred of the Jews or whatever it is. Anti-Semitism began in the 1870s. It is not hatred. It's not religious. It's not uh, the Christian um, prejudice against the Jews. Discrimination, because it would be, I would say, discrimination in the 1930s. You're going to call it anti-Semitism, the fact that Harvard didn't let in a certain number of Jews. What do you mean? 
but they didn't let in blacks. They didn't let in Catholics. In other words, they had a policy of what it was that they wanted the university to be. Jews didn't fit. Asians didn't fit. There were a whole kind of categories that didn't fit. So to say that that anti-Semitism, that Hitler's uh, decision to eliminate the Jews is anti-Semitism, you see, this, this gets you nowhere and is very confusing. So I would reserve the term anti-Semitism for this. Organization of politics against Jews. That's the beginning of anti-Semitism. I can't go with it in terms of history, but anti-Semitism was created in the 1870s within a specific context, and it organized politics against the Jews. And my point is that if you want to understand anti-Semitism, you have to understand its function. Its function having to do with the Jews. You have to forget about the Jews. Anti-Semitism is kind of blaming the Jews, finger pointing at the Jews, transposing uh, all grievance and blame to the Jews. It is an instrument of politics and a very, very dangerous instrument that enters into democratic societies and it enters on the right and boy, does it ever enter on the left. So in answer to the second part of your question, yeah, I mean, anti-Semitism was organized by Hitler, by all kinds of anti-Semitic movements in Romania, in Hungary, in Poland, and elsewhere. It wasn't to the same degree everywhere. In each case, it had a function of organizing grievance against the Jews and being able to provide a kind of soundbite answer. You want to know what's wrong? It's the Jews. Now, as far as anti-Zionism is concerned, there's a parallel. It's more than a parallel. When the Arab countries were just, you know, beginning to come out of the uh, phase of colonialism and imperialism to in 1945, the same year that Hitler... Uh, uh, you know, went down in his bunker. That's when the Arab League formed in 1945. And here is something so unbelievable. 1945, same year that the Second World ended and we thought anti-Semitism was finished because Hitlerism was finished. Lo and behold, the Arab League organized against one thing primarily, and that is it organized against the state of Israel, even before Israel was created. Now, what else you Arab states that came together in the Arab League? Just look at the, the states, look at them, and you'll see there was only one glue, one unifying element, the organization of politics against the Jews. So the degree to which anti-Israel became crucial to the Arab country and to what united Arab nationalists, let's say, and uh, religious leaders, you know, the Sunnis, so many differentiations within the Arab world. Ah, but this was a great univine feature. So even that one, that one function of anti-Semitism in the Arab world is enough to explain why it has been so central from then until recently, which by the way, why we should also be specific. Look, 
there are certain countries now in the Arab world, certain Arab leaders who realized that blaming Israel was not an answer after all, that they were going to have to start to modernize, that they were going to have to reform. Every country that begins to democratize and that begins to be self-defining, that is to say, self-accusatory, that, that begins to say the problem lies with us, that country is going to stop being anti-Israel. If a country is anti-Israel, you know it's not truly democratic. And the degree to which it is democratic and self, I would say, um, you know, um, that takes it upon itself to solve its own problems. Those mature countries are never going to be against the Jews. And that part of our society, which is, which under the responsibility for our with ourselves, part of the country is never going to Jews. So this is anti-Semitism, as I define it, has to be taken seriously because it's not about us at all. It's not the Jews ever. And you see, we make a terrible mistake when we think, oh, you know, maybe we can correct ourselves. Maybe we can do something that will make it better. That's absolutely stupid because anti-Semitism is always directed against what's good about the Jews. And so you think about this, you have to talk about the anti-Semites. Anti-Semitism belongs to the anti-Semites. Anti-Semitism is a disease, a political, political uh, instrument, very popular, very effective in the short run, but it's disastrous for the people who really resort to it. I think we cannot ever, ever allow um, anyone to blame Israel for what is wrong with and, um And so I often said to students, never defend, never defend Israel, never. Because if you, if you, if you set out to defend Israel, what you end up doing is talking about Israel. Israel is never the problem. So I think that whenever anyone attacks, you have to turn it around and to say, by what measure are you attacking? I don't understand. Who is the attacker here? Who is the prosecution? What is your right to prosecute? What are you asking? Are you talking the amount of land? So you take out the map of the and you say, are you crazy? But don't you see that these countries have 640 times more land? than this little time, you can't even find it. Telling me that these uh, these miles are gonna make the difference in that war of the Arab and Muslim countries against going on since 1945. You have to push it back. You have to challenge uh, the attackers. And um, so here's a paradox, you might say, that as a people, is to be self-accusatory. And as I've said, this is a good thing. This is what democracy is. Democracy is that somehow we have to find the problem in ourselves. Okay, I'll say, problem is on the right. No, you'll say, no, the problem is on the left. Okay, so together we have to solve the problems that are ours to solve. That's good. But it is not good to be self-accusatory. 
when you are being accused of all that is hate about you. Israel's being accused in the, because it, is, it works so well, because it has taken in so many immigrants, because it, it, because it has solved so many of its own problems, because it is such a model. Israel is being accused because and nobody wants a lot. Nobody wants to be lighted out of that darkness that they live in. And so to apologize for that, or to try to answer to it, gets you deeper into a hole. And please, it's contention ultimate of the attacker. If you respect your enemies, then you have to have the decency to call them to account for what they are not. You have to have the you have to have the decency to know that, for, for example, on a campus, when uh, groups of black students, for example, or uh, uh, LSD come as a grievance group and they say, or or when the Palestinian students come and they say, oh, Israel is apartheid and so on, you have to smash that movement intellectually. You have to for their sake. I want to thank you, Professor. You were very gracious with your time and, and sharing your wisdom with us and uh, gave us a lot to think about. There's a lot more questions, a lot more to talk about, and hopefully we'll have the opportunity to continue this conversation. But for this time, from the bottom of our hearts, we thank you and we wish you well. We wish you gesund and uh, you should be uh, have good thank health you. and uh, nachas and continue to inspire thank to stand up too. for the Jewish people, stand up for good causes. And we thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening to Behind the Bima. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week for another peek behind the Bima.